Well, as we've done at the start of every week, we've done the Apostles' Creed series. We have stood and we affirm the creed that we have received from those who have come before us and that we will hand off to those who after we are gone, that this is truth that has come before us um, from the very beginnings of the church, these incredible words that we stand as one to affirm with, our, with one voice. So let's stand together and read these words together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thank you. you. May be seated. So the phrase we're looking at today is, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. That we believe in second chances, right? You believe in second chances? Third, fourth, fifth, yes, yes. Uh, daily chances of new beginnings. So we believe that God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves, which is forgive us of our sin, of our wrongdoing, of breaking moral and ethical law, breaking God's law. That we believe that this is maybe, aside from the resurrection, with the resurrection, this is the most distinct message the church of Jesus Christ has to proclaim to a world that desperately needs those words that desperately needs to be reminded that God forgives sin, that the shackles can come off, that we need second chances, that, that, that everybody makes mistakes, right? And that, that to err is, is human, to forgive is, is divine, as the old statement goes, but not really on social media. That doesn't really fly too well. Not a lot of forgiveness going on uh, on Twitter or whatever. Actually, unfortunately, over the past many years, thousands of people's lives have gotten ruined by a lack of forgiveness in our modern society. In the year 2015, a father was in Australia, and he went to go see one of the new Star Wars movies with his son. I went to go see those with my son, too. I wish I had my money back on a few of them, but I still enjoyed myself. And uh, he's, on, he's, he's posing with his son in front of the movie poster, taking a picture with his son, right? Well, a woman across the way sees them and thinks that they're taking a picture of her. And so she takes a picture of that guy, posts him on Facebook, and says, get a load of this creep. Well, then that post would get shared 20,000 times. And this guy quickly found himself under death threats, and accusations that he had no idea what was going on. And he went to the police station to try and clear his name, but it was too late. He had already been publicly shamed. No forgiveness going on there. And then when he tried to say that, hey, hey, my accuser is wrong, then people started jumping on her for doing something wrong. You know, in centuries past, villagers might cast out the dishonored In the colonial times, maybe you had a stockade you'd put someone in, or in Nathaniel Hawthorne's book, The Scarlet Letter, Hester Prynne might wear an A on her chest. 
But in all those things, the, the, the lack of forgiveness maybe was finite. Maybe, right? But with situations like that on, in Australia in 2015, it just will always be there. Your name will always be associated with that being since essentially dishonored. There's something about we like to see other people get punished, right? On our worst day, on the sinful nature of who we are, we, we, we enjoy it. We enjoy to see other people not get forgiveness sometimes. You know, there's no, I'm not excusing mistakes people have made online. They need to be held to account in some way, but, but, there's, but when there's such a lack of grace, such a lack of forgiveness, it's really showing our need for it. That outrage has become all the rage. Public doxing, shaming, the court of public opinion, basically just not even following the golden rule you know, at all. Um, it's, if, if, if we speak out of the overflow of our heart, and I think we do, then we also tweet out of the overflow of our heart. You know, so we're not necessarily naturally prone to forgiveness. It's not a natural thing in our flesh that, that comes easily. And so what happens is when people don't, maybe you don't know who Jesus is, or you don't believe in the gospel, or you haven't experienced the forgiveness of God for yourself first, because I think what we should do first is say, I ought to do, I ought to inspect myself first, then maybe I'm able to address that in someone else's life. So when we don't do that, here's what we do. We look at other people and say to them, you ought to. You ought to have said this or done this. You ought to. And that's us on our worst day. And people haven't really changed. If you look 2,000 years ago, it happened to Jesus' day. You had these religious leaders, these Pharisees, and they, they drag a woman out in the street, throw her in the dirt, and they use her as a prop to win an argument, basically. And, and that's what happens today on social media. We're dragging people out into the, 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 the public, if you will, and shaming them, not showing forgiveness. And that's what the Pharisees are doing in this story. They're pulling her out, throwing her on the street, and they're, they're essentially saying to her, we're better than you. We know better than you. You ought to have done this. And so they're not only trying to trap her, but they're also trying to trap Jesus. The woman was in the act of adultery. Now the man, of course, doesn't get included in this. He should have, because he's a part, he's part of that. So they throw her in front of Jesus, and they say to him, teacher, the law says we're justified to kill this woman right now on the street. We can stone her right now according to the law of Moses. What do you say? And so Jesus is then, in their minds, they're thinking, well, he's trapped. No matter what he says, he's going to go against the law that he knows, that Jesus knows. And so either way, we're going to win here. But what does Jesus do? He does the most amazing thing that only really God would do, only God could do, that he knows the sins of those men. And so he kneels down, and we believe, scholars believe, he writes the sins, or some of the sins, of those Pharisees in the dirt. He doesn't even say anything. Like, what a baller move is that? He doesn't even say their sins. He just writes them down. And it's like a mic drop moment, or stone drop moment, because old, from oldest to youngest, they drop the stones and they walk away. Jesus kneels down to this woman. He's probably naked in the street. And says to her, woman, where are your accusers? I believe it was a moment of tenderness, of compassion, of 
you know he's ministering to this woman in the moment of her deepest shame and embarrassment. He says, where are your accusers? They're gone, my Lord. And then God in flesh says this to her. A woman in need of forgiveness more than any other's moment, he says to her, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. He doesn't say what you were doing was okay. But he also doesn't say, I accuse you. How beautiful is that? This this incarnational picture of the forgiveness of sins. He's forgiving her sin, but also saying, "Don't don't do it again. He is grace and truth embodied both. Full, the fullness of God is in Jesus. And so in this moment where these men are trying to shame her in public, he, does the, he gives the perfect response in reaction to this moment. Now, as sinners, like I said, we love to expose the sins in other people's lives. We love, instead of first saying, I ought to, we love to look at others and go, you ought to. You ought to not have done that. You ought to have said this. You ought to have done that. But those same people that do that, they have a very difficult time being honest before God with their own sin and surrendering their own sin and showing it to God as if you could hide it. It's always easier to talk about the sins of others than to express forgiveness to someone else. Instead of seeking to break off our own shackles first, we want to enslave other people around us, don't we? So there's something satisfying about that, but for the Christian, the world's going to do that, unfortunately. But for the Christian, this should not be so. We should be rigorous in judging our own sin and receiving the forgiveness of God for that, but then gracious in dealing with the sins of others because everybody's going through some sort of quiet struggle. Everybody that you probably don't know about. So let's start with, I ought to. I seek your forgiveness, God, first. And Jesus would teach about this a lot. In Luke chapter 18, he, just, he shows the contrast between self-righteousness and humility, of the, really the self-righteousness of the religious leaders of the Pharisees with, he would say, a humble tax collector. And in that, to show that dichotomy, he's showing which one is actually justified before God. Luke 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Equal ground. They're going to go pray before God. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even this tax. Tax collector's right there next to him. Even this tax collector... I'm better than that guy. I fast twice a week on the external. I look great. I give a tenth of all my income, exactly a tenth. No more, though. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went home to his justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. So the first step to finding forgiveness of sin is saying, just, just being humble before God and saying, God, have mercy on me. And Jesus says, if you do that, you will be justified in the sight of God. Again, Jesus teaches on this in Matthew chapter 7, 
starting in verse 3, where he, he's showing the contrast of, of the hypocrisy of pointing out the sins of others without first looking at inwardly on your own. What's that Michael Jackson song? Remember, Man in the Mirror? Man, that's a good song. That's good lyrics. Think about it. Anyway, I won't go into that. That's a aside. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye? We've got a speck, very small. Why do you notice the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Can you see if you have a log in your eye? No, you cannot. How, or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye, while the log is in your own eye? You can't see their speck. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own. Now, Jesus isn't advocating putting log in your eye. He's not not being literal here. But then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Now, I've heard this incorrectly uh, interpreted over the years as saying, you can't judge anybody. Everybody's fine. They're okay, you're okay, but just don't say anything about their sin. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying you can address the sin in someone else's life, but do not do so hypocritically. So if you're an alcoholic, I recommend you don't talk to someone about their problem with drinking. Or if you have a problem with pornography, don't address sexual immorality in somebody else, right? Until you clean up your own house, then your words will fall short in the eyes or the ears of that person. So I'm going to take a step back because we hear the word sin a lot. Sin, sin, sin. If you're in church long enough, you hear it all the time. Or depending on the church or the preacher, you never hear it at all. Just depends. But sin, what is sin? How do you define it? And why does it need to be forgiven? Why do we even need that? Well, the Greek word for sin is the word hamartia, which means to miss the mark or a fatal flaw that brings downfall. So if you imagine moral and ethical perfection as the center of a bullseye, I was watching the Olympics, you know, many of us did the past few weeks, and they had these guys, one guy from North Carolina won the gold in like some obscure shooting thing. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it was amazing, but he hit the bullseye every time as he was shooting this little, almost like a, like a 22 sized gun. But if you think of the bullseye as moral and ethical perfection, human beings left to our own ability, we are unable to hit that target every single time. We stray off the target. We, get, we, we know what we ought to do. We, we know we should do, but we can't do it, or we won't do it, or we get distracted by temptation. If temptation is just a distraction away from God's best in your life. It really is. When you're tempted to do something you know you shouldn't do, it could very well be that God has something great for you down the road and, that and the enemy just wants to lead you away from that you know, but if you persist through temptation, there is a reward, I believe, after that. But sin is essentially our inability to hit that mark on our own strength and ability, that we miss the mark. We know what we ought to do, but we don't do it. We know what we should do, but we don't do it. Now, here's the irony is that we know what we ought to do, which means that it points to some sort of standard of moral perfection. It points to it, that we know there's a standard and we don't always hit it, that things on this earth break down, things die, things are not as they should be. So we know that that is true. 
If you want to see the reality of sin, if you're like, I don't know about sin. Is sin real? I don't know. If you want to see the reality of sin, try not to sin. Try really, really hard not to do it. Try really, really hard to be a perfect human being. Perfect thoughts, perfect actions, never making mistakes. If you try to do that, sin becomes pretty clear pretty fast that we miss the mark. Now, but in contrast, John Wesley accurately taught that we can achieve moral, we can achieve perfection in love in this life. That is good news. That the Holy Spirit's work within us can grow us in sanctification to be growing in love, to get better at love, really, to get, become more like Jesus in this life. So it doesn't mean we're just lost in our sin, but that God loves us enough not to leave us where we were or where we are, but that he raises us up. So that is true, but the Christian life is not some constant high either. Forgiveness is hard. Forgiveness is very difficult sometimes, depending on the situation especially. When you ask the great saints of history, especially later in life, like Mother Teresa, Saint Augustine, they would write that their sins were just ever before them. John Wesley would list his sins in his journals, just the ways he had sinned that day as a confession to God. That it was just, as they got closer to the holiness of God, their sins just became more and more apparent. So there's a good aspect, of, of course, of repentance and confession and receiving the forgiveness of sin. But we have to be careful not just to become obsessed with not sinning, that we forget to enjoy God right? Like, is enjoying God and, and enjoying his love is, will help you, I think, avoid, you know, avoid sin. So how do we know what we ought to do, right? How do we know that? How do we know there's a standard we should hit, but we don't always hit it? A secular word for that would be conscience. That's what we understand. Like, remember those old cartoons, like the Looney Tunes, where there's like an angel and a demon, you know, the pitchfork, and they're like, hey, you know, they're making you have this dilemma. I think that's so true. I mean, you still feel that way sometimes. Like, you, you're given a choice. Like, the, the, your conscience is put there, I believe, because it's by God's grace. God, it's still the image of God that we carry. It's there for a reason that God still in his grace gives to us to help us determine right from wrong. So you could say it's the image of God within us, but it's, but it's damaged by sin. It's, there's an imperfect image of God we all carry. Um, when I saw a picture of myself when I was about five, and it looked like my daughter. <laughs> Did you ever tell you that? Like, oh, you look just like your, your grandfather. Or you see a picture of you as a baby, and it looks like your great-great whatever. Or if people say, oh, you look just like your mom, right? What they're saying is, is that you, you bear their image. There's, you, you look like them. You, you carry that a little bit. And in the same way, we, we carry the image of God. I mean, why is it that Jesus looks like us? Isn't that fascinating? That, that we do bear that image, but it's flawed. It's damaged by sin. Now, if you're a Calvinist or a Presbyterian or even a lot of Baptists, they believe in a thing called total depravity, that the human soul is just totally depraved. And with, and with, like capital T, capital D, and so, and without the, 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 the sovereign work of God, you're, you're totally lost. Now, as Wesleyans, we believe in the total depravity, but it's more of a lowercase t, lowercase d, that we are definitely depraved. 
but that we still believe we have a role to play with our choices and decisions and what we choose to do in those moments. That God, we're not robots. We're not, we're not, God gives us the ability to choose what we will do in those moments. So we know that a definition of sin, we know what we ought to do, but we don't do it. So then what? How do you receive this forgiveness of God? Well, Jesus teaches us to actually pray about it. In the Lord's Prayer, he teaches us the familiar words. Forgive, really forgive me of my trespasses or forgive me of my sins as forgive me of ways of those that I've sinned against. So he's really saying that sin has a vertical orientation to it between you and God, but that sin also has a horizontal. And so sin isn't merely just what happens between you and God, but that it impacts those around us. Because I, there's a lot of reasons I think Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive me of my trespasses, and help me forgive those who trespass against me. Because left to ourselves, I just want to pull people out in the street and shame them, right? <laughs> left to myself, left to our own nature, without God's help, with the Spirit correcting me, that could be what I want to do, is not forgive them. And he tells us to, to pray for forgiveness, to receive it, and then reciprocate it. There's a story of a little four-year-old boy who was trying to memorize the Lord's Prayer in Sunday school. And when he got to the line, forgive us of our trespasses, and those who have trespassed against us, he said, forgive us of our trash baskets, and as we forgive those who put trash in our baskets. I think he's on to something. It's a pretty deep theological statement, actually. Because when I sin, and you sin, we fill up our basket with trash. And it starts clogging things up pretty quick. And then it can get overflowing. And you can just start putting trash in other people's baskets. And start their basket from overflowing. That sin is indeed a two-way street. That's why it's important to deal with the sin first in your own life before you can even address it with somebody else. Because then you'll be hypocritical in doing, in doing so. So there's the vertical aspect of sin and, of course, the horizontal. So when Jesus teaches this in Matthew 6, these words here, which, which, which I'm going to get into, that can be very difficult. He's really saying that we have a role to play in furthering the forgiveness of God. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Those are tough. Those are tough sentences. But I'll explain a little bit why I think they're so important and why Jesus would teach something like that. He's, in many ways, he's saying that forgiveness of God is more than just saying to God, I'm sorry. I receive your forgiveness for myself. And then you walk away. And that's good. But he's also saying, God wants to heal your relationships as well, the horizontal nature of life. Look at this remarkable quote by the author Lewis Smeads. To forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. It's true. Now, but you could be thinking, that sounds great, Clark, but some of my relationships are beyond repair. You do not understand what this person did to me. And I'm not going to make light of that either. 
And that could very well be true. But let's talk about what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not pardon. It's not a blanket pardon for what somebody's behavior. You're not condoning what they have done. Forgiveness is not necessarily reconciliation, where you're gonna be reconciled to that person. Forgiveness is saying, I am going to relinquish this person to God by the choice of my will. Maybe do it every day, repeatedly. Because the alternative of not doing that, of rejecting what Jesus is saying here, of not forgiving other people, and it may take time, and it will be hard work. It's the hard work of forgiveness, and that's true. But the alternative to not doing it is that old saying that resentment is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. To choose forgiveness and then pass it on, it's the antidote to bitterness and resentment. And like I said, it might not come overnight. Forgive and be forgiven. Here's what I've learned about when you talk about sin with people and my own life as well. Sin either causes, when you address the sin in people's lives, it causes people to repent, to go, like Jesus said in Matthew, have mercy on me, God, I'm a sinner. Or it makes them build up their defenses even more and say to, and continue to be in your hiddenness, to continue hiding as if you could hide your sin from God. Like Ellen Martin said last week, you just continue to say, God, I don't want to go back in the garden. I want to remain hidden. I don't want to go into the light with what I got. I don't think you could accept me with what I have to show you. I'm not good enough. Here's good news. You're not good enough. I'm not, none of us are good enough. That's why it's the grace of God. The sun people, though, they are, you, you've been hiding so long in your sin, you don't even know you're hiding. That's, there are people out there like that. They, they don't even know they've been hiding apart from the grace of God. But God wants to come in and take out all that trash. And it might fill up a dumpster. I worked with a ministry called CCC, as you've heard me say before, when I was in college, and we'd go to homes and do like home repair and stuff like that. Youth groups would come in, fix up houses, give their project. And one man we worked for was a Vietnam veteran. He was deeply, deeply depressed. He had, he had a single wide trailer. It was actually half of a single wide, single wide trailer. It was more like a storage container, really. I don't know where he, but it was about that size. And half of that was full of trash like from floor to ceiling, garbage, food, old furniture, you name it. And then he lived in like a corner where he had a bed and a toilet and a kitchenette, and that was about it. He never went outside. It was really bad living conditions. Well, we came in, we cleared out, gave him new floor, you know, bought him clothes, and long story short, this guy's life was transformed, but he passed away a year after that. A remarkable move of God on that, on that day, but the kids went in and they cleaned out that whole side of his trailer, just threw it all away. We brought in a 40-foot dumpster, filled it up, and he didn't even complain. And you could see the lightness and the freedom that he felt when that happened. You know, here's what God wants to do in our lives. He wants to take away our trash. It might fill up a dumpster, but you wouldn't be alone in that. We need to be given a new nature, a new start. That's the message of the forgiveness of sins. 
is that anyone that's in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You've become a new creature in the, by the work of the Spirit of God because God doesn't just want to forgive your sin. He also wants to heal the relationships and the baggage and the burdens that we carry. But he also just wants full control over who we are, a full salvation. First John it affirms us in these words as I close. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. So as we close, I'm, I'm going to just have a time of prayer, a time for us between you and God. You know, you might be thinking, what do I need to confess? I don't know. The Holy Spirit, sometimes we overthink it. Sometimes the Holy Spirit just brings things to your mind. And that, did you pray about it? And, and, and here's, an, I don't have an altar up here, but here's an important distinction. Is that, let's say you got your sin. Maybe, maybe your sin is, I don't know, maybe it's this or it's this. But you, you lay it on the altar and you leave it there. Here's what shame does. The enemy loves to use shame in our sin and hold, holding us down and continue to want to cling to that and say you're, you're, you're that, saying that basically you're never going to be more than what, that, what happened. That is who you are. And so here's what we do. We, lay, we say, God, I'm giving you my sin. I'm sorry. Lay it on the altar. And then what do we do? We, we sneak back up, maybe in the middle of the night, and we pick it back up, and we continue to hold on to it. And I think God is saying to us today, don't, just let it go. Just let, let your sin go. Don't continue to cling to it because I've already forgiven you for it. I already did. And when you sin tomorrow, I'll forgive you for that too. So let's, let's pray now and have a moment just to, just to be able to do that with God. God, we come before you as a people daily in need of grace. And we thank you, Lord, that with you there is forgiveness of sins. Therefore, you are worshipped. Thank you, God, that you love us, not just to leave us where we are, but your word says that if we bow down and admit our dependence on you, you will lift us up and give us honor, that a humble and contrite spirit you will not deny. And it's in holy moments like this that we might not think anything's happening, But God, you're always working. We might not feel anything.